0: Lord, thank you for today. Thank you for the gift of worship and the gift of your word that shapes us. Uh, We realize that sometimes we don't want to be shaped by it. Sometimes we are um, slow in speaking, slow in hearing. Sometimes we don't communicate well. Sometimes we screen out things. I pray that none of that would happen now. The Holy Spirit, you would do what you do in making yourself known to your people. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're going to read this uh, in sections as we go. We're not going to read the whole thing. It's a bit of a longer passage. Psalm 66. This is our last psalm. We call it summer in the psalm sometimes. Summer ended on September 21st. This is a little bit late. This is the way it goes. This, uh, this week I was having dinner with an old friend of mine, and I, an old friend that I've known for a long time, and he's 84 years old. Uh, And really, one of the most godly men I know. I really enjoy this brother. His name's Bill Armstrong. He's walked with the Lord for many years. He's one of these guys that every third thing he says, I want to write down in my journal. It's just, I love spending time with Bill, uh, and I've known him since I moved to the city in 1998, and he wanted to get together and talk with me about some things the Lord has been showing him and teaching him in some ministry endeavors he's still involved in and initiating at 84 years old. It's a beautiful thing. We were at, so we were at Giacomo uh, this week, and I was sitting with my back to the window in Washington Street. So I'm, I'm sitting here, Washington Street, and the window is behind me. And Bill is right here to my right, and then I, there's like uh, six or eight people that are in front of me, can see me, and can see behind me. And so Bill is talking, and I'm paying attention because it's always good and always interesting. And I noticed that these six or seven people see something behind me. And, they, and who knows what's happening on Washington Street, right? If you live here, like, it could be anything. But this wasn't a bad thing. I knew that. They were just, they were taking delight in it. They were laughing. They were pointing at it, not like mocking, but something they were really enjoying. And I didn't know what it was. They were, they were simply delighting in something and uh, maybe even adoring something, really enjoying it. And the more they did that, the more I was wanting to turn my head and look. But Bill, Bill couldn't see what was going on in Washington Street and couldn't see them. He was just into his story and talking to me, and I'm listening to him, and I'm seeing them adoring and enjoying whatever's behind me, and all of me, every fiber of my being, just wanted to say, hold on and look, and... Uh, but I was really trying to pay attention to my friend. And so I succeeded. I think I only succeeded in not turning my head. For a few minutes there, I really wasn't paying attention. Because the en- I didn't even know these people. But their enjoyment, ah, their even adoration of something compelled me to want to take part in it compelled me to want to turn my own head and adore that with them. They weren't saying, stop your conversation and turn around. They weren't saying, turn your head. They weren't saying, this is really important. They were just personally taking delight in it and that very action caused me to want to delight in it as well. Psalm 66, this last psalm we're looking at here for a while, our final psalm of the year is about, in some way, it's about what we might call evangelism, but if you were a theologian, you might call it a big phrase, doxological evangelism. That is uh, evangelism through adoration evangelism through praise. God's people simply, genuinely adoring God, leading to the desire of the nations to do the same thing. God's God's people adoring him, being a compelling, vibrant witness to the nations to do the same thing. So on your insert, I put at the very top in red, the big idea here is that in Psalm 66 is that genuine adoration of God is a vibrant witness to our world. Worshiping God for what he has done is a way of summoning the nations to do the same. Genuine adoration in our own life, corporately together and individually, is a powerful invitation to the world in which we live to adore him as well. Because we could say genuine adoration means we're seeing God for who he is, actually. Or could say it the other way, seeing God accurately for who he really is inevitably leads to genuine adoration. And if we see him for who he is, of course we will want other people to see him for who he is. Because we realize, oh my goodness, He is incredibly gracious and generous to me. How can I not want other people also to experience that generosity and graciousness of God? We see him clearly. We say, I am actually made for this God. How can I not want other people to see that they're made for this God as well? And then we adore him, and that adoration is a compelling witness to the nations for them to adore him as well. So this psalm begins broad to all the earth and ends very narrow with the psalmist, him or herself. So Psalm 66, this is not written by David. We don't know who this is written for by, but we know it's written for all the worshipers. There's a kind of a goodness of the anonymity of this psalm is it can be picked up and used by anyone at any place. So here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna read it responsively. I will read the regular part and then you will read the bolded part, but you will read along with Megan. Okay, so I will read the regular part, Megan will read the bold part, and you will join your voice with Megan in the bold part. So just a little crowd interaction on this psalm. Psalm 66, to the choir master, a song, a psalm. Shout for joy to God, all the earth. Sing to the glory of his name. Give to him glorious praise.
1: Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. So great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you. All the earth worships you and sings praises to you. They sing praises to your name. Selah,
0: Selah, whatever. I didn't put that in bold, so that's me. That was a mistake on my part. It just means pause probably. It's an annotation in the Hebrew in the Bible. So this is a call to all the earth in verse one. Not one section of the earth, not one subgroup of people, Right? God is not the tribal deity of people in the West or Asians or Africans. He's the God of all the earth. So this is a sum, to all the earth. Praise God. And it's related to the fact here in verse two and verse four that God has a name, a sing to the glory of his name. What is that talking about? What is God's name? Well, back in February of 2022, we did a whole sermon on this one singular name of God. It's a reference back to Exodus chapter three where God is pulling the Hebrews together and he's gonna lead them out of slavery in Egypt and he says to Moses, this old guy said, guess what, you're gonna lead the people. And Moses says, I don't think so. And God says, yes, you really are gonna lead the people and I'm gonna go with you. And Moses says to God, hmm, if the people say to me, who sent me, what do I tell them your name is? So on the back of your insert there, there's a little section from Exodus 3. Exodus three thirteen. then Moses said to God, Name means I am. God says, my name is I am. And we say in our language something like Yahweh. The King James says the Jehovah. That's sort of a German spin on Yahweh. And in your Bible in the Old Testament, typically when you see the word Lord, L-O-R-D, capitalized, that is this divine name, I am. Now this, this has multiform meaning. But one, I mean, let me just point out one little narrow slice of implication of this name I am, from a theologian named Craig Carter. This is underneath that Exodus passage in his uh, fantastic book called "Interpreting Scripture with the Great Tradition." It's a little heady, a little philosophical at the first, but just hang with me. The God of the Bible is not merely the biggest, strongest spiritual being of all. He is not merely a being among other beings. He is the creator of all that exists. There are only two categories of existing things. God in one category by himself and in the other category, all that is not God, including angels, demons, human beings, and the entire spiritual and material realms of creation. Everything in that second category has its existence as a gift from the one who created all that exists and is himself uncreated. All other things have existence, sorry about this phrase. All other things, all other beings have existence in addition to their essence. But God's being or his essence is his existence. For God to name himself, I am, is tantamount to him saying, I am my own existence. Nothing gave me my existence, and I did not bring myself into existence. I could never fail to exist or cease to exist because I am. God, as we say here often, God is not just like us, but bigger and better and stronger. He is different. He is apart from his creation. Now, he makes himself available to be known in part by his creation, by you and me. But he's not just like Roger, but better and bigger. He's not just like you, but better and bigger. He is completely other. So when we are worshiping him and when we are adoring him and calling the nations to do the same, we are, not, we are doing, we're calling people to do and we're doing ourselves the very thing that all of creation is designed to do. We are philosophically would say creation is contingent on the creator. The creator is not contingent on the creation. Worship is just acknowledging our contingency, our dependence on the one who created us. It's not an extra thing. It's not a burden to anybody to say, do what you're made for. It is the very thing all of creation has been created to do. So the summoning of other people and our adoration ourselves of God is not a burden. It is the very thing rooted in the meaning of his name. I am my name. And there are, though he is apart from his creation, there are signs of him everywhere in his creation. And that's why we have verse three say to God, How awesome are your deeds! So great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you. It's a, that's a pretty, I guess that's a good translation. It's, it's sort of communicating, Your enemies will come. Reluctantly, but without excuse. Cringing like, okay, because they know. Those who set themselves against you eventually will come before you without excuse because they know because God has not left himself without witness in creation itself. Creation points to the existence of God, and those signs are designed to cause men, men and women to seek this God, They're comp- compelled to seek this God. Romans 1, this is also on the back of your insert, this is one of the sort of the most famous summary statements of the problem with you and me. <laughs> the problem with all mankind, right here, Romans 1, setting up why redemption needed to happen. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth or suppress the truth in unrighteousness. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. We were without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they become futile in their thinking. Why? Because they suppress the truth in unrighteousness and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. What Romans 1 is saying, in part, this is not doing justice to Romans 1. Creation everywhere points to the reality that there is a creator who is powerful. And the Comprehensive response of mankind is to what this says: suppress that truth and unrighteousness. That could be conscious; it could be subconscious. I don't know, but suppress. You know, like push it down, turn away. Creation points to the reality that there's a creator who's powerful. I see that, but I push it down and turn it away. I don't know if that's intentional or unintentional. If it's uh, subconscious or conscious, I'm not sure. But we know that these things that are suppressed in unrighteousness are designed to cause men and women to seek after God. But in suppressing that truth, we become comfortable in not doing so. So, for instance, there is something and not nothing. This water bottle, we we say somebody... It didn't just pop into existence by itself. Somebody made this. Somebody in China, made this. Somebody designed it, of formed the stainless steel, stamped it, painted it, shipped it, whatever. Somebody made this. It had a cause. It is. It's, it's fairly complex, so we know somebody made this. We don't just look at it and say, well, I, just, I guess it made itself. We live in a world that is so complex that even the most complex creatures... People like us and smarter than us say, we'll never understand the complexity of this world. It's something and it's complex. And everywhere else in our existence, we say, you know, things that are complex and exist had something that started it. But with this, a vast portion of our world says, I guess it just happened on its own. It's called suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. And we're all prone to do this. Every culture, every culture has a sense of right and wrong. I know it varies from culture to culture, not as much as a sociologist will have you believe, however. Almost every culture murder is wrong, for instance. Murder of your own people is wrong. The appropriate thing to be asked would would be like, where does that come from? This sense in everybody that there's right and wrong. Could it be, again, we say something comes from something else. This sense of right and wrong, surely it must come from something else that has a sense of right and wrong. Nope, it's just random. I guess it all just comes along like that. We suppress the truth in unrighteousness. We can go on. We can talk about information that's embedded in the cell and how we never have an example. We don't even know how information would come from non-information But then we say, well, I guess it just happens. Um, When we are worshiping and adoring the God who is and calling all the nations to do so, we are calling people back to their original design and we are moving back to our original design. We are worshiping a God who has a name. We're also worshiping a God who acts in history. Let's read five through seven together. Come and see what God has done. He is awesome in his deeds toward the children of man. He turned the sea into dry land. They passed through the river on foot.
1: There did we rejoice in him who rules by his might forever, whose eyes keep watch on the nations. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves.
0: Selah. Okay, this is an adoration of a God who also works in history. God chose a tiny, weak, unimpressive people called the Hebrews in the Old Testament to be a sign of what he offers. Strength and weakness, deliverance, hope, future, blessing. And even in the Old Testament, there was this invitation for all the nations to join themselves to this little people. And some did. Even some of their captors, I don't know if you know this, some, some Egyptians left with Israel out of slavery because they said, I want to worship this Yahweh and you are, the, you are the community that does that. I want to be with you. There was this invitation, even in the Old Testament, for all the nations to come and enjoy God's people. And they were supposed to be a light to the nations. Now, they often weren't. But even though God sustained them, verse 6 he turned the sea into dry land. That's a reference to taking them through the Red Sea out of slavery. They passed through the river on foot. That's, a, that's referring to passing through the Jordan River into the land of promise after they were in the desert for 40 years. Uh, the point here is that we have a God who acts in history, He's not a theoretical God. He does stuff. He, he, he leads them through the Red Sea. He leads them into this promised land. In the middle of that, right, he, appeared, he, he led them in the day by a pillar of cloud and a night by a pillar of fire. He's personally involved with his people and personally involved in history. He's not sort of a, a theoretical God or a philosophical God or an idea that just drops out of the sky. He's a God who is personally invested from, in history and all of that was just the beginning. This same God, this same God actually, really, and truly, and personally takes on human flesh. He becomes a person in history. So Hebrews 2 says this, since the, therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself partook of the same things so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. We're adoring a God who didn't just like lob commands to us. Like, here's another law. He is so committed to his people that he personally steps in and becomes one of us so that he can be an authentic representative and really and truly bear our burdens. And that means also, just a little bit later in Hebrews, it says, um, We do not have a high priest or a Jesus who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are yet without sin. This God who really stepped into history and became one like us, he knows what it is to suffer as a human person. He knows what it is to be tempted and tried and pressed and betrayed and sorrowful and weakened and broken and betrayed. He knows this. He knows what it is to support you when you had these same experiences. And the same God who took on flesh with real spikes in his real arms was really crucified in his body. And then in that same body was raised to life three days later, personally invested in history. A sense of the throne, and really sense His Spirit. So this Spirit of Christ dwells in the family I'm looking at right now. He's still operating in history. So we're not we're not adoring a God, or we're not inviting people to adore a God who's just a theory, not just an idea, not just like the latest psychological take on mankind that you might learn at college. A real God who operates in history. And you know, when we see Jesus face to face, he will still be in human form. Do you know that? This is how committed he is. His, his body didn't evaporate when he ascended to heaven. He's committed to the material person. And he renews this earth on which we stand. We are in a story that is absolute. So this at the end it says, verse 7 let the very end, let not the rebellious exalt themselves. Why? Because that, that story can't end. There's only one story that endures in history. The one where Jesus steps in and he's crucified and resurrected and reigns and returns. Every other story submits to that stuff. So if you think you're going to exalt your story over that, this is a warning here. It says, let not the rebellious exalt themselves. So when we're adoring God, we're saying, Can you believe it? I get to be involved in this story. (laughs) That's amazing. And when we're inviting other people to do that by our our adoration and saying, you can be involved in this too. this story that lasts forever. We talk all the time about how do I find meaning in my life and how do I have a job that's meaningful and do meaningful things? How about be involved in a story that lasts forever and can never end? That seems pretty meaningful. We get to do that, friends, and we get to invite other people into that. I think it's pretty cool. We get to adore a God who acts in history. All right, let's look at verse eight through 12. Let's read this together. Bless our God, O peoples. Let the sound of his praise be heard, who has kept our soul among the living and has not let our feet slip. For you, O God, have tested us. You have tried us as silver is tried.
1: You have brought us into the net. You laid a crushing burden on our backs. You let men ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water, yet you have brought us out to a place of abundance.
0: This is adoration of a God who preserves a people in spite of themselves. Or we can say, who preserves us in spite of ourselves. Speaking as a corporate people, verse 9 says, You have kept us among the living and not let our feet slip. In spite of your history, God, of bringing hardships on us. Verse 10, you have tested us and tried us. And we say, why would God bring hardship on his people? We don't have to ask. We can just go back and look. At every single place, this hard, you know, so describes the hardship here as a net, a burden, men ride over our heads, fire, water. If you go back to those places, it's almost always because of this. Very simple. The people are rebelling against God. (laughs) And he's bringing correction to them because he loves them. And he knows they're a contingent creation designed to be dependent on him. And they're intent on turning away from him and he is intent on turning them back. Bringing heat to purify them. So verse 10, right, it says, you, O God, have tested us, you have tried us as silver is tried. That's a purification of silver. When silver comes out of the ground, it's got all kinds of impure elements in it. You drop it in a furnace, vat, heat it up, the elements come out, scrape off the elements, you have pure silver left. It requires heat. This is God allowing, sometimes bringing the heat of life onto his people for purification. Sometimes it's strong correction to break their love affair, to break our love affair with idols that will destroy us. He loves us enough to bring strong correction into our life. It's sometimes strong correction. It's never destruction. How do we know that? The people are still singing right here. If he destroyed them, nobody would be singing this song. No way to be writing this song. They say, you did all this. And they're not blaming him. They're agreeing with him. Look at verse 12. (sighs) You let men ride over our heads. We went through the fire and through the water. And, And just, you can tell from the prophets, especially Isaiah and Jeremiah, they know that it's because they're disobedient and rebellious. And I wish wish this word could like pop out in English, this next word. You let men ride over our heads. We went through the fire and water. Yet, yet, you have brought us out to a place of abundance. We were rejecting you. We were despising you. We were disobedient to you. We were rebellious to you. We said, leave us alone. And you said, no, no. You were intent on pursuing us even in the midst of all this and eventually brought us into a place of abundance where we turn around and say, thank you. Thank you for pursuing us and loving us enough to bring correction, even hard correction into our life that we would see you and break the love affair with the things in our life that are breaking us. These people were faithless and God was faithful. God did not cast them off permanently even though they sinned and turned away. So what we have here is what we might call a corporate failure of the people being described, but a personal faithfulness of God. Let me just talk a a little bit about application for us here. If I can speak for New City, I guess I do, uh, as a member of the team of elders, so speaking corporately just for a second. So I'm saying we, I mean the the organism that is New City Church. I want to make a promise to you. I think it's true. 80% true. Uh, If you hang around here long enough, New City Church will disappoint you. We will. Now sometimes it'll be you. You'll be oversensitive, unrealistic, impute motives. But sometimes it's not. It's true. Sometimes the corporate body will disappoint you. Your leadership will disappoint you. We will make wrong decisions, or at least decisions you would not have made. We'll not say enough or do enough, and sometimes we'll say too much and do too much. We'll respond too slow when we're not responding too fast. We'll not love well in some way, or maybe in many ways. Just give it enough time. Now, I don't want this to be the case, but (laughs) it will be. It has been sometimes. We will fail you. Jesus will not fail you. He won't. We can look back. We can look around at church history maybe and see the failure of Christians, groups of Christians, churches, movements, denominations, or Christian leaders. And we can see that. I mean, some people make a career out of just criticizing churches and Christian leaders. And you know what? There's a lot of things to criticize out there. I get it. And we can look at that and say, oh, we're so disappointed. We're so shocked and dismayed and discouraged. Okay. If you want to say that, fine. I mean, Jesus told you it would happen. But if you want to say that, that's fine. So if you're going to say that, I want to say, okay, let say that. But right after that, please say something like, and we are so encouraged, heartened, and hope-filled that God is faithful to such faithless people. Because one day it won't be a them, it will be a me that I'll be saying, I'm so thankful that the Lord pursues me and is willing to bring strong, corrective discipline into my life in order to break the idols that are breaking me. I'm so thankful. So we want to be able to see the failures out there and in here and acknowledge that they and we can be so frail and doubting and weak and with them say, yet, yet, you've brought me in to a place of abundance. This is what the gospel is, friends. We're weak and failing and failing and faltering and God is not. And he does for us what we could not do, what we cannot do, what we will not be able to do over and over and over again for his people. Also for individuals, look at verse 13. Here the psalmist personalizes this and teaches us to personalize for ourselves. Verse 13, let's read 13 to 15. I will come into your house with burnt offerings. I will perform my vows to you, that which my lips uttered and my mouth promised when I was in trouble.
1: I will offer to you burnt offerings of fattened animals with the smoke of the sacrifice of rams. I will make an offering of bulls and goats. Silah.
0: So this is not looking out to the people, but in here, I was in trouble, it says in verse 14. So each worshiper picking this up and personalizing it for themselves, for yourselves, I was in trouble. Now, what you may not know is the offerings mentioned here are not thank offerings, they're sin offerings. That's just that's the type of offerings. So what's in view here, the trouble that's in view is sin and forgiveness here. So the trouble that the, per, the worshiper is thinking about is, if I'm personalizing it, is Roger's own sin and rebellion. That's my, that's my problem. Usually resulting in broken relationships with other people. Feeling like God is far away and all kinds of internal ick, right? Anger, frustration, self-pity, envy. What do we do when we see this? What's our recourse? We do what the psalmist here does. To joyfully, lavishly stand in the provision God makes for our sin. Here it was the sacrificial system, but that, was pointing something to something else. The the bulls and goats, the death of those animals didn't do anything in themselves. They were a placeholder and a sign to the final sacrifice who would come, Jesus Christ, the righteous for his people. That's the real triumphant work of God in our life. Our default mode, guys, I think is generally this. As Christians, as American Christians... Our default mode is to think what the real compelling testimony in our life is, is how we do good and how we're kind and how we're loving. Our default mode is to think that it's our good works, good behavior and success and good example that's the most compelling testimony to the work of God. Let me just say that again. Our default mode is to think that our good works, good behavior, our togetherness, our with it success and good example is the most compelling testimony to the work of God in our lives. Hear me. It is not. It is not. The psalmist here isn't saying, I praise God that I didn't need him. Praise God that I got it all together. So I praise God in my trouble. And my trouble was my sin. What's the most compelling testimony in our life to the work of God? Honesty. Honesty. Honesty about our sin and our struggle and then how God has rescued us. It's such freedom. It's such freedom just to start with the reality that I am so screwed up and God is a great deliverer. Can I, you, can I tell you how I'm screwed up today? Sometimes all of us, maybe right now, some of us are not honest with ourselves. We're suppressing and turning away, pressing down and turning away the vision of our own sin and frailty. We're pushing down and turning away from our anger or our desire for security or a dependency on something or an addiction, I mean a habit that if we looked at it clearly we'd say it's stronger than we are. We're pressing down and turning away from a deep fear or bitterness or envy or resentment, and you know what's happening? We are missing the grace that could be ours. He's made provision, and he says, come and enjoy it. Come and get it. The gospel, guys, means not just that we're forgiven, but that we're accepted, brought in, and loved. And if you're in Christ, the relational move is always first before God addresses the sin for those who are in Christ. Yesterday, we had our grandson over just for a couple hours and uh, it's just a very normal thing. It's just the most normal thing ever. He's walking outside on our sidewalk. We're out there and he just, he just falls, right? Because he's a little kid. and His head weighs, you know, a third of his body. And, he, and his knee, and he, he got up, grabbed his knee, you know, and my wife, his grandma, did something that every mom probably would have done. She, first, she just grabbed him and picked him up, brought him in, The relational move was first, quieted him, held him. Okay, I love you. You're fine. Now he's got his hand over his knee. Now let's look at the knee. The relational move is first before the wound is addressed, right? Now, in his case, there was nothing. (laughs) He just was afraid. That's okay. The relational move was first. First, he holds us. Imagine what would happen if we were a community absolutely convinced that that was the move of God toward us first and freeing us then to be completely honest about our sin and our need of God. It'd be beautiful, right? Where well, I think we're moving in that direction. But we need simply to know that the relational move of God toward us is first. And maybe that he's moving that way toward others too. I don't have anybody in my mind, but I do wonder if we need to think too, am I harboring a a lack of forgiveness against somebody that the Lord has actually forgiven? If that's you, I don't know if that's you. That might be the Spirit just saying, for someone in here, um, act on that. Do not harbor relational resentment and bitterness against people the Lord has forgiven and embraces. Please, for your own sake, for their sake, for the sake of the adoration of his name. Okay, finally, it's verse 16 to 20, come and hear, all you who fear God, and I will tell you what He has done for my soul. I cried to Him with my mouth, and high praise was on my tongue. For my Blessed be God, because He has not rejected my prayer or removed His steadfast love from me. So the bold part that you read does not mean that if we struggle with sin, God does not hear our prayers. It does mean that if we orient our life to sin, we cannot possibly pray according to his will. There's lots more to be taught then, but I want to just back up a little bit to verse 16 and 17. Come and hear all you who fear God, and I will tell what he has done for my soul. Generally, I think this is how it's worked in history. The corporate body together has declared what God has done in history, the, his, his acts in history, the, the big picture of the gospel, and each of his people have said, let me tell you how that intersects my life. I've got something to tell you about how God has done something for my life. Now, the word soul there means life, really. It's, don't think of it as a disembodied, immaterial sense. It's our life. You have something to say you know that. What has God done for your life? That is your testimony. That is your invitation to this world for adoration of God. That's what you get to adore God for and about. Now, it doesn't have, you don't have to make it worse than it is or better than it is. It's not a competition. My kids used to go to a Christian summer camp. I'm not going to tell you which one it is, but like it was a more of a revivalistic camp, and, like, all these counselors would give their testimony, and then the kids would have to kind of give their testimony, and it was like, I don't know, I guess all these counselors were addicted to drugs, I don't know, like, in their past, I mean, it doesn't look like it, or they were, I don't know, orphans in Antarctica, raised by penguins, and I don't know, it's like, it's, their stories were so unbelievable. I mean, if that's true, praise God. I think they were probably embellishing a little bit to show, just show more. But the effect was the kids are like, well, I guess I don't really have a great story, <laughs> you know. And I think a lot of parents might get thrown under the bus so the kids could have a better story. My parents were worse than they were. Um, we don't have to do that. The Lord has done good things for your life. He's redeemed your soul. He's redeemed your life from the pit. You have sin he's dealing with and he has providentially ordained your adoration of what he's done in your life to be effective for those with whom you're sharing it. Just trust that. How has he brought hope in darkness to you even if the darkness hasn't lifted? How has he been merciful in our sin? How does he make you smile? What joy does God bring into your life? How has he rescued me from my past or my worst tendencies? Some of us do have family backgrounds that we're very thankful to have been rescued from. Praise God. How has he given me hope in the midst of despair right now? How does he bring me peace in the present even if I forget it about every other minute? How has he helped me become more forgiving? How is he helping me lay down my defensiveness? How is he teaching me to grieve with him over the brokenness of our world? How is he teaching me to enjoy his creation? What has he done for your soul? If we adore God for that, others will see that and say, I'm interested in adoring the same God for the same thing. The way we are able to see that clearly and continue to see what he's done for our soul clearly is to know that we are radically secure in him. Part of the way we come into that radical security and it's pressed on us every week is the communion table. Where Jesus, really after this, after he institutes this at the the Passover meal, he prays, but he says, he prefaces the prayer by saying, my soul is very sorrowful even unto death. So that we can say, you've done great things for my soul to life over and over again. So if you're in Christ, I wanna invite you to come to this communion table. This is where you have a security and an anchoredness and a rootedness to see freely and clearly what the Lord has done for your soul. I'm going to pray.